When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The Slate Culture Gab Fest is sponsored by Retail Me Not, the app that offers you coupons from 50,000 stores all in one place. Find deals like 60% off, free shipping, and free gifts with purchase. Get an invite to download the Retail Me Not app on your phone by texting CULTURE to 42767. Again, text CULTURE to 42767. Message and data rates apply. And by PBS, presenting Wolf Hall, the new adaptation of the best-selling book series by Hilary Mantel. Catch this historical drama for a modern audience with Thomas Cromwell at the center of political intrigue in the Tudor court. Wolf Hall airs on Masterpiece on PBS, Sunday, April 5th at 10, 9 central. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest Scamp Stamp Edition. It's Wednesday, March 25th, 2015. On today's show... It's Me, Hillary is the HBO documentary about the pathos and wonder-filled life of the man who drew the children's book Eloise at the Plaza. And then the threat of sexual injury on college campuses is very real, but has it completely overtaken campus life? We'll discuss a provocative essay by the author Laura Kipnis and the reaction to that essay. And finally, impressions. What makes mimicry into a work of art? We'll discuss this with the novelist Jacob Rubin. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. Welcome back. Thank you so much. It's great to be back. We missed you. Ah, yeah, I missed you too. Um, sure, and of sure. Course, uh... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> All right, I'll just shut up. <laughs> can we can we get this plane out of the fucking hangar, please? And then, uh, uh, and of course, uh, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steve. Uh, you don't sound like you missed me. <laughs> Actually, we haven't all, given that Julia was out for a bit, too, we have not all been in the same room. I mean, in the same airwave for like a month. No, it's been I two know, weeks. I know, it's true. Because I was uh, out the same week that Steve was out. Oh, okay. Never mind. She's really missed us. <laughs> it seemed like a month since we've been together. 
I can't help noting that nobody seems to want to throw me into a mansplicatory rhapsody about the wonders of Argentina. Oh, you went to Buenos Aires, right? I did, and then I went to the Pat- Argentine Patagonia. Oh, Whoa. I'm dying. Patagonia is like A number one on my list of desired destinations, I would say. Oh, yeah. No, I can fill your head and your you know, imagination with the places you might want to go. I, I I love it down there. It's an amazing experience, but I'm not going to bore the crap out of everyone. We can uh, save that for a future but... Slate Plus segment. All right, Steve. Actually, before we start, I have a couple of pieces of business that we need to attend to. So first, uh, I need to let listeners know what our Slate Plus segment is going to be. Uh, in our third segment, we're talking to Jacob Rubin, the novelist about the art of the celebrity impression. Jacob Rubin is a, a dear friend of mine, and I'm really looking forward to that segment. And as a treat for our Plus members, or perhaps a punishment, you can decide. Uh, we, Dana, Steve, and I are going to debut our most awesomely terrifying or terrifyingly awesome celebrity impressions in Slate Plus. So uh, go to slate.com slash culture plus to sign up for Plus and listen to us humiliate ourselves uh, reading some crucial texts in the voices of luminaries. We've got Dana here doing Bob Dylan. So get psyched for that. Uh, My second announcement is that we are hosting a Mad Men premiere finale party. It is the premiere of the final season. It's the premiere. Uh, It's the night of Sunday, April 5th. We're going to do it at the Bell House in Brooklyn. It is free. Uh, It's free. If you're a Slate Plus member, you can come at 8 o'clock, have cocktails with me, John Swansburg, a number of other Mad Men commentary at luminaries that we'll gather for the evening uh, and have some cocktails, get some early free seating. uh, And then at 9 o'clock, we'll open up the doors to everyone We'll do a little bit of chat about Mad Men and its legacy and how Matthew Weiner is going to land this plane. And then we'll watch the first of the final seven episodes of Mad Men's final season all together and kibitz a little bit about it after it's done. Uh, So again, that is Sunday, April 5th at the Bell House, 8 p.m. for Slate Plus members, 9 p.m. for the general public. We'll have details about how to get tickets for that event at slate.com slash madmen. All right, Steve, what's next? All right, Julia. In the 1950s, an illustrator named Hillary Knight teamed up with Kay Thompson. She was a Hollywood actress. And Thompson had an idea for a children's book about a six-year-old girl named Eloise who lives in her own wonderful bubble at the Plaza Hotel in New York City. The resulting book, of course, Eloise, became an enduring children's literature classic. And yet... Like Eloise, there was something perhaps a little arrested about Thompson. She feuded with Knight. She pulled all the Eloise sequels uh, off of the market. And eventually, she legally alienated Knight from his most famous creation. Uh, HBO has produced a documentary, uh, in in part courtesy of Lena Dunham's huge uh, admiration and imaginative debt to uh, Hillary Knight's work about this story. We all watched it. Why don't we listen to a clip? Who is the little girl who lives at the plaza in New York? That's me, Eloise. I'm six. I live on the top floor. I remember having an awareness of Eloise and feeling very strongly that it was mine, which I've now realized is like a pretty universal feeling. Eloise does what she wants when she wants it, and she doesn't brush her hair, doesn't care that her stomach hangs over her skirt. So there's a lot to relate to when you're a slightly weird child. She has a sense of place and a sense that she deserves to be where she is. Julia, clearly the instigating energy and force behind this documentary is Lena Dunham. We should say it's directed by a gentleman named Matt Wolf, but it's presided over in every one of its uh, facets by Dunham. It, it's, it's motivated by her apparently deep interest 
in the subject uh, uh, of both Eloise and the story behind it. What did you make of the documentary? I mean, it's instigated not just by Lena Dunham's interest. It's it's instigated by her tattoo. She has a tramp stamp of Eloise that she displays in an early moment of the film. Uh, and she's... This documentary is a disaster. It's terrible. I think it's the worst documentary I've seen in a long time. I had the moment when preparing for it when I realized that it was only 30 minutes, and I was like, woo, I got out scot-free. I thought I was was in for two hours of documentary viewing. This is going to be a... You know, a a brisk skedaddle through the hallways of the plaza. And then it just felt very ill-served by the direction and by Lena. Lena Dunham should have gotten out of the way. She should have used her clout to get this thing made and then just gotten the hell out of the film. She just sort of simpers through the movie, talking about, oh, how desperately important Eloise was to her as a as an impish child in New York City, and she collects a bunch of, you know, comedy cool cats, you know, Mindy Kaling, Fran Lebowitz, uh, who's maybe never been called a comedy cool cat before. (laughs) But, you know, whatever, like sort of lady cool kids. Fran Lebowitz just sits around at HBO in a tuxedo waiting for someone to come in and interview her for a documentary. (laughs) With the mic on. Yeah, yeah, so she, you know, she she loved Eloise. Lots of independent-minded um, acerbically observant ladies think Eloise is a cool character from children's books, and I loved the Eloise children's books. They are worthy of interest, but all of this pomp and circumstance about how much Eloise means to young women in a documentary this short takes time away from the actual story of Eloise, which is sort of fascinating, which I didn't know. I didn't know that Kay Thompson was a sort of Hollywood broad or that Kay Thompson and the illustrator Hillary Knight had a complicated relationship and a dark falling out. And I kind of feel from watching the film like I still don't really understand what happened between them. It never really gets into sort of the evolution of the character as they work together or what their working relationship was. It sort of throws up a few screenshots of what Knight's illustration work was in the years after Eloise, both making the case that it was important, but by treating it so glancingly in the film, suggesting that, in fact, Eloise was his only major accomplishment. We very briefly get introduced to a series of strong-headed dames that he consorts with in later life, and it's sort of suggested that he has a lifelong fascination with strong-headed dames dating back to Kate Thompson and perhaps now including Lena Dunham. And then it just ends. I don't know. I found this so unsatisfying. Dana, am I I wrong? Yeah. I mean, uh, as as soon as it started, I could tell that it was in this certain genre of like the very light, glancing, kind of affectionate portrait of an artist. It reminded me a little bit in tone of Spike Jonze's documentary about Maurice Sendak, which I think was also made for television. That was a full-length feature movie, but it had a similar sense of, (laughs) of Spike Jonze kind of hanging around too much and being a little bit of a... I don't know, just sort of a, a, a fawning hanger-on and that we didn't really care about Spike Jones's relationship to Maurice Sendak. We wanted to know more about Maurice Sendak. That said, that this, that was a superior documentary to this one and actually told the story of his life in a fairly full way. Yeah, I felt like I came away from that documentary understanding the nature of Sendak's work and why sort of the forces and insights that animated it. And this one seemed like it just was an outline for such an investigation. It's like, oh, he had illustrator parents. He had complicated <laughs> yeah. relationships with women. Uh, wasn't Eloise cute? Well, also, there's the the story of him being a gay man, but no story whatsoever about his love life. We never heard mm-hmm. about a single important relationship or affair or whether he is now celibate or, you know, why is he this older gay man who wants always to consort with these young, strong Eloise-like women? Right. Well, it seems to me that the if there's a kind of glib, glibness, wisdom, you know, um, 
tension that makes the Eloise book so unique, that was what the documentary should have exploited because it's a movie, to the extent it's about anything, it's about both the benefits and the cost of living within a charmed bubble, which is, of course, what the Eloise books are themselves about. And, you know, it seems to me that there's a, that Thompson lived within one very like Eloise, and that unfortunately gave off a kind of Grey Gardens energy. It went sort of from, you know, Wes Anderson to Grey Gardens uh, as it started to spoil and rot. And that ruined the relationship with Knight. And then you can tell the story of Knight with that dialectic in the background, right? Because he does live, he's he's managed to keep himself within a weird, self-created, wonder-filled bubble uh, in a way that hasn't, according to Dunham and the sensibility of the film at least, hasn't really rotted. In fact, that's, that's the final assertion of the movie is that this guy who, he kind of does these almost bizarre live action masks, you know, spelled with a Q-U, these, these kind of tableau vivant, uh, using characters from his own books. I mean, he, he lives in a very sort of tchotchke and wonder-filled self-created universe. And if you're not charmed by that, then you then whatever the central argument, you know, is here is really going to fail. And I don't think I was charmed by it. And, and, and sadly, what it does instead is it argues against itself. And it, it says that people within hermetic and charmed bubbles actually are arrested in some way. And for the first time in a really long time, Lena Dunham comes off as Hannah Horvath, right? Like, like a, per, a person imprisoned within her own preciousness in a way that the satirist Lena Dunham you feel escapes from because she's totally aware of who her alter ego is. Yeah, it's, I'm such a huge admirer of Lena Dunham. I mean, I think she manages to be self-deprecating and self-lacerating and exploratory and investigative with just pitch-perfect tones so much of the time. And that, to me, was what was distracting about this movie is that she seemed to be playing this kind of anointed anointer. Like, things that all have been really working out great for me, so I'm going to take my cloud to shine a light on this guy who never got the light of day. I mean, I don't know. I actually think it might be more interesting to talk a little bit about the Eloise books and what we like and don't like about them, because the, the, the poor, thin, shoddy documentary seems like it's already... We've already poked it over. <laughs> yeah, I suspect that this documentary is the the result of some weird backroom deal where Lena Dunham said, can I please make a movie about Hillary Knight? And they said, fine, if you keep it to half an hour and you're in it a lot. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it really feels like that. And I, I like you, Julia, I continue to be, I'm a huge girls fan. I think she's a great talent, but I just, I think she's kind of overexposed right now and she might have done better to stay behind the camera in this one. So are you, like, are you an Eloise fan? Also, you guys both have daughters. I'm I in scouring my uh, kids' book piles this morning to try and bring this book in, realized that I don't have a copy of Eloise for my sons. And in fact, there's a set of kids' books that I grew up with that I now realize people don't give you when you have sons instead of daughters. So Eloise, the Madeline books, uh, the Angelina Ballerina books. I was trying to think of a few other ones that are just missing amidst all the Richard Scarry car catalog books that, that are currently populating our house. And I didn't have Eloise around, but I loved Eloise as a kid. Did you guys? I mean, I have to say that this, uh, sorry to jump in, but I have to say that this documentary brought home to me why I do not like the Eloise books. It seems to me that, that kids' literature is all about entering into the consciousness of, uh, cannily entering into the consciousness of extremely young, developing children. And that's a kind of bubble. And if you think about this in relation to the Sendak documentary, I mean, what Sendak's work says is that from within the bubble, the outside world appears terrifying and foreboding 
and somewhat monstrous, and it was Sendak's revolution in children literature, I mean, it following upon an ancient tradition of the Brothers Grimm, but to really acknowledge that terror. And the other way to go is sort of the K. Thompson slash, to a degree, Wes Anderson way, which is to say, oh, the bubble is, is, is charmed, and it's a tragedy that we ever exit it. And in fact, within it is a kind of magic. And uh, I don't believe that. I mean, and, and furthermore, if given the choice between not only Sendak and and the Eloise books, but the Eloise books and the Madeline books, I'm way, way more disposed for some reason to Madeline books. And I feel as though I got to why these books didn't connect with me or apparently with my daughters. I, I love, first of all, I love the illustrations. This is nothing about Hillary Knight. It really is more about Kay Thompson. And when you see Kay Thompson in the documentary, you see a person determined to live in a world of her, a, a massively protected bubble of her own making and and I feel like that's kind of where this character came from Dana am I wrong about that or yeah you know I never had the Eloise books as a child so I discovered them as a grown-up probably because people gave them to us and they were just suddenly around the house um, and sort of touted these these classics I think the the illustrations are incredible the text is actually really beautifully done too they're kind of a beautifully realized work of what they are but I just don't like the character I think I don't like I don't feel this Lena Dunham Mindy Kaling I don't know apparently every young comedian in the world deeply feels that she's Eloise and owns that character and has always been that character I feel sort of alienated from that character and find her uh, I don't know. All, all I can all I can foresee is her troubled adolescence and her, you know, overdosing at a ski resort or something. Well, like so that. she's she's an abandoned child, right? She has there's no parents in the picture. There's a there's no daddy. There's a distant mom figure who kind of telegrams into the nanny every once in a while. Nanny is a sort of you know sensible but indulgent souse who's reliably around, but you know not not really the uh, loving, stable home that one might want for this child. So this is a kid who basically has chosen an air of entitled mischief as her way of reckoning with her abandonment. That's interesting. And and she's really perceptive and funny. She's, she's very funny. She's sort of... Um, doesn't seem to notice her own abandonment or feel it in any core emotional way. She's not sad. There's not a lot of lessons in love and hugs. There's a lot of brisk acknowledgement of the distant family. And then a lot of like spirited engagement with the adult world, right? She's like phoning bellhops and ordering room service and kind of imitating the patois of spoiled rich people, but she's just a kid. Um, she's like a little Edie Sedgwick, you know, she's that she's that kind of figure. And I see the appeal of, of a miniature Edie Sedgwick, but ultimately her world always just seemed depressing to me. It, it's beautifully telegraphed, I have to say, by Kay Thompson's prose in this very Com compressed and compact way. A little tiny sentence with no punctuation will get across, you know, social satire and some facts about Eloise's life. And you just learn a lot in, in these very short little nuggets of text. And all that is, is beautifully realized. But I sort of felt when this Eloise book was around and I had a little girl to read it to that I didn't want her to get too identified with that character. I didn't want her to feel that she was Eloise because there was something sort of entitled and off-putting about that behavior. You know, one other thing that Dunham points out is that, you know, Eloise, they, she's described as being not pretty yet. She, she's not, she doesn't look like Angelina Ballerina, who's a very beautiful mouse, if I recall, and looks kind of doe-eyed and dolled up in pink and tulle all the time. She's that's got, my tramp, that's my tramp stamp. <laughs> Angelina Ballerina. Oh, she's, yeah. she's, she's got a little bit of, um, 
you know, she, uh, that she's got a little bit of a pot belly. She's messy. She's not well kempt. I mean, it is sort of she's sort of radical. I mean, you know, children's literature is full of tomboy girls. Like there's more tomboy girls than than not tomboy girls, it feels like, from Anne of Green Gables and Joe on down. But she's she's very visually rendered as this kind of unkempt, you know, non-princess figure, even though she's very princessy in her sense of entitlement in a way. So I, I, I get that as sort of a feminist hallmark, too. All right. Well, um, the documentary is called It's Me, Hillary. It's on HBO. You can probably find it on HBO Go at this point. Um, I'm very curious to know what our listeners thought of Eloise when they were growing up. Did they read it to their own children? Agree with us, disagree with us, come to facebook.com slash culturefest. Also tell us what figure of children's literature <laughs> illustration you would get as your tramp stamp. <laughs> <laughs> your, your scamp stamp. I love it. We've started a new trend. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor, Julia Turner. What do we have? Our first sponsor this week, Steve, is Retail Me Not, the number one digital coupon app, which offers thousands of coupons from 55,000 stores all in one place. I am a frequent user of Retail Me Not. When I do my online shopping, I always like to go to their desktop site and click up whatever discounts might exist for me. And they now have a terrific app with promo codes from retailers like Kohl's, Domino's, Best Buy, and more, offering deals like 60% off, free shipping, free gifts with purchase. Get a text invite to download the free Retail Me Not app right now for your smartphone. Just text CULTURE to 42767. Then redeem the coupons right from your phone when you're checking out. It's that easy. And don't forget that message and data rates may apply. So text CULTURE to 42767 for the Retail Me Not app right now. All right. Well, the essayist Laura Kipnis is the author of books such as Against Love, a Polemic, and Men, Notes from an Ongoing Investigation. She also teaches at Northwestern University. Uh, last week, around 30 Northwestern students staged a rally against Kipnis. They were protesting her essay in the Chronicle of Higher Education called Sexual Paranoia Strikes Academe, where Kipnis had derided campus bans on romantic relationships between professors and students, but also more broadly uh, slammed the current aura of emotional injury that she says now drapes over almost all campus interactions. Before we dig in, Dana, let me give you, a, let's give our listeners a little bit of a flavor of the essay if they haven't read it. When I was in college, writes Kipnis, hooking up with professors was more or less part of the curriculum. Admittedly, I went to an art school, and mine was the lucky generation that came of age in that too brief interregnum after the sexual revolution and before AIDS, i.e. back when sex, even when not so great or when people got their feelings hurt, fell under the category of life experience. It's not that I didn't make my share of mistakes or act stupidly and inchoately, but it was embarrassing, not traumatizing. Dana, I know it seems as though we keep returning to this subject. Actually, I think it keeps returning to us. What What's going on here? Yeah, this overlaps in some ways with the conversation we had recently about Jonathan Chait and political correctness and also one about trigger warnings that we had a while back. But I think you're right. I mean, it's 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 something that is really prevalent in the culture and especially in academia that kind of keeps bobbing to the surface again and again. Um, Laura Kipnis is a very polemical writer. She is also somewhat of a... Uh, a diva or something like that. There's something performative about her essay that's essentially sort of saying, in a way similar to what how Katie Royfe will sometimes frame her essays, that she'll sort of essentially accuse everyone else of not being as sexually liberated and with it as Laura Kipnis. You know, that is a little bit the way she frames the question. And as far as whether undergraduates should be able to have affairs with professors, that seems like a perfectly logical ban to me. That does seem like a huge power differential and a, a bad place for, you know, academic relationships to, to slip into. Um, 
But I think the mm-hmm. more interesting points that Laura Kipnis makes have less to do with the direct ban of undergraduate professor relationships and more with what she labels as sort of a new use of feminism as a sort of giant pillow to protect everyone from trauma or something. You know, the idea that the, 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 the primary responsibility of, of, of feminism to young women is to protect them from trauma or from negative experiences. I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't know where to, to tread in this territory because I feel like everywhere I go, like I'll put a foot wrong and someone will be offended. But I think that there is something in that. I think there is something unhealthy about the um, emphasis on trauma and uh, triggers mm-hmm. and protection in academia, in the precise place where we're all supposed to be trading prickly ideas and coming up against new concepts. Really? Yeah, uh, Julia, is it right? I, I agree with Dana on the, on this issue, um, uh, which is that you can approach this Kipnis essay in both a letter and spirit of the law attitude, right? So the, I suspect I don't quite agree with Kipnis on whether or not there should be such a ban. I think a, a ban certainly between professors and undergraduates having romantic relationships, probably not a bad idea, but there's a spirit of the law that she's getting at. Let me quote another piece of her essay. Why all this delicacy? Students are being encouraged to regard themselves as such exquisitely sensitive creatures that an errant classroom remark could impede their education as such hothouse flowers that an unfunny joke was likely to create lasting trauma. What did you make of the essay? I had three primary responses to it. First, admiration. Laura Kibnis is just a very fun and spirited writer. It, I think, says something about the nature of current debate that the primary people who are pointing out this stifling culture and what some of the problems of uh, academic culture right now might be are sort of professional provocateurs. I think Jonathan Chait is not afraid of stirring up a fight on the internet. I think Laura Kibnis is someone who kind of likes to poke uh, complacencies and consensuses, consensi. In any event, she likes to poke them, and she does it really elegantly and with great brio. And it's pretty, it's pretty fun to read. So I had admiration for this as a piece of writing. Uh, I also felt a sense of almost generational alienation. Like, yes, Laura Kipnis thinks this. Yes, Jonathan Chait has the objections that he does to political correctness. There's a whole generation of people. I think it's a pretty big generation to which we all loosely belong, who fundamentally agree with the sense that something feels not quite right. It seems like something has gone too far. It seems like there's a set of expectations among young people these days that protection from or insulation from difficult ideas or experiences is somehow primary and should be more important than, you know, kind of tearing it up with gusto in the free marketplace of intellectual debate. That's all very well and good that a lot of people of our generation have that sort of skepticism to varying degrees and expressed with varying degrees of performative brio. But like, we're not the ones who need to debate each other about this. And I remember actually with our trigger warning conversation, our intern at the time, Anna Sheckman, who was just a few years out of an elite liberal arts college, was much less dismissive of the trigger warning idea than we were. And it seemed like a normal and sensible way to frame discourse. And I, you know, we discussed it while we were taping. I don't think we had her on the show, but I wish now that we had. I sort of wish right now we were conducting a debate with a bunch of people who are currently or recently in college who think that these are sound policies and that this essay was an abomination. Because the problem with this larger social conversation is that there's a set of people, primarily from one generation, who raise these questions and concerns about the state of discourse on campuses 
and the, you know, sort of what they are searching for, what they want is kind of an open debate of ideas. And what they are met with is eye rolling. And there's this kind of sense of snide dismissal on the Internet of like, oh, why should I even engage in direct argument with these like fusty old provocateurs? And I kind of want to hear that debate. I want to hear a more direct engagement with these critiques and a more robust defense of this mode of thinking about things, of, of you know, why their trigger warnings are valuable, why that isn't an impingement on speech or on academic learning or uh, an infantilization and sort of intellectual infantilization that will make it difficult to, to live in the real world. Right. I mean, the response that you described in that student manifesto was less eye-rolling, sort of the social media eye-rolling that happened after the Jonathan Chait essay than it is getting out the smelling salts, you know, it's a little bit like, take me to my fainting couch. Laura Kipnis has spoken evil words that I must keep at bay. And there's something, it's, well, Kipnis herself calls this melodrama. She says feminism has been hijacked by melodrama. And it's sort of hard not to see in the response to her essay exactly that happening. Then again, I mean, you could say that her essay is in itself a piece of performative melodrama that's trying to provoke that. But I, I think it's true. This is turning into one of those depressing American public debates that can't go anywhere, you know, like the abortion yeah debate. It's just like two separate locked rooms of people yelling. Right. And let me let me say where I, d- I actually admire the Kipnis essay. Um, my what gives me pause about it is, is 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 exactly its rhetorical and argumentative brio, which displays a personality that seems capable and probably was capable when younger of accepting and enduring life's bruises, including at the hands of older, more powerful men. Like that's kind of who she is. Now, not every young woman is like that. And personally, as the father of daughters, I sort of hope my kids go to schools where the professors don't are completely disallowed from the get-go to have a predatory attitude towards younger students men and women that said um, I admire the brio of it I generally agree with the larger point about um, sexual paranoia reigning on campus and that students are now being treated as trauma cases waiting to happen I'm using now Kipnis's language but what where I really disagree with her is she concludes by saying, if you wanted to produce a pacified, cowering citizenry, this would be the method. Uh, and in that sense, we're all victims. So that's the sort of final rhetorical exclamation point of the piece. I basically agree with it, uh, uh, but I would shade it slightly differently, which is that this is actually about a power that these students have and they're exercising it, which is the ultimate primacy of the student as consumer in the new modern university. And this is a real change. Um, what they're expressing is amazement that they can't completely determine the style and content of uh, intellectual debate in the classroom from the get-go and amazed to discover that that's not the case, that in fact, this professor who used to be 50 years ago regarded as an on high authority figure, which was not entirely healthy, who's now basically a service professional hired by the students and the students' parents. Um, they're amazed that they don't control the the tone of the rhetoric coming out of that person's mouth. So in one sense, they're, they, I think that in some deeper sense, I think she's right. They're pacified and, and cowering in a way. Um, but in another sense, they're the agents making a, a, an environment of pacification and cowering um, as, as powerful consumers, as people who are basically saying, I refuse to cede one ounce of power to the supposed authority figure. They're not actually an authority figure. I'm the client here. Service the client. Yeah, no, I mean, I think what the, the some of the strongest parts of Kipnis's essay are about how so much of the modern academy is preoccupied with notions of power and how complexly power operates within any human relationship or relationship with a, a corporate or professional or academic entity. Um, 
And there is. The students have a lot of power, whether that's power endowed to them by their status as consumers or uh, you know, power endowed to them by the sheer fact that through social media and other mechanisms, they can publicly shame people whose behavior they don't like or don't agree with. I mean, the thing that troubles me about this atmosphere is I do think so much of how you frame your understanding of sex as you learn the role it's going to play in your life is cultural. It does have to do with the models that you see. And the fact that by and large as a society, we are able to listen to rape victims and understand and assess what's happened to them and punish people who uh, treat women badly is great. But I do think there is a risk that the more we train young women to frame many sexual experiences through this lens of victimhood, the more likely that is to to create victims in a way. I mean, this starts now to touch on, which is actually mentioned in some of the coverage of this this Kipnis flap, Emily Bazelon's great long-reported piece in the Times Magazine about that strange relationship at Stanford, right? The woman, the mentor-mentee relationship where the guy was not her professor, he was her professional mentor, and they had what seemed to be a consensual sexual relationship involving being boyfriend and girlfriend and taking trips together, and that long after that, she decided that all of that had constituted essentially kidnapping and rape and took him to court. And it was a beautifully reported story because it did basically show the, uh, the the confusion on both sides and kind of the impossibility of labeling what had happened between those two people with any of these um, convenient tags that we've been using. I mean, what is so what's going on here, right? I mean, when you go back and you look at what happened at, say, Berkeley in the 1960s uh, during the you know height of the protest years, setting aside civil rights and the Vietnam War, one of the things the student protesters were asking in no uncertain terms was not to be treated like children, that they were serious moral agents, that they were uh, uh, bargainers for a common adult reality as members of the university community. They weren't cogs in the machine to use language that was current at the time. Is it is it an extension of that or a flipping of that on its head that beloved children of middle and upper middle class and wealthy people of the sort that routinely go to college are now parented in, helicopter parented, up until the minute they get dropped off uh, at Swarthmore or Yale. And they've never come into direct contact, not only with the real world, but with anything unpleasant. And in some de- de- to some degree, don't even have anything resembling full human agency. College, God bless it, is this halfway house in which they make the transition from that coddled child to something like an adult ready to enter you know, the real world or the unreal world called grad school or whatever it is. Um, and so this is this, it's you know obviously always going to be a hyper-symbolic battle zone. The university always has been and always will be. But what's going on? Is it is it, as I sometimes think, simply an attempt to kind of emotionally blackmail authority figures into being as ginger and in some ways patronizing as their own parents have been to them? Or is it um, an attempt to say, no, in fact, we are moral bargaining agents on par with you, and we're not going to accept um, uh, uh, you know what Laura Kipnis has to say or Jonathan Chait has to say. I'm trying to put my head around what's going on here. Can anyone help me out? I'm not sure actually that the result of the helicopter parented child is the coddled, you know, is the coddled innocent. I mean, in some ways, the rationale behind helicopter parenting is the fact that there's so much available so rapidly to corrupt the innocence of children to mm-hmm. begin with. You know, like they they, they can all like 
They can all watch people have all kinds of sex on YouTube starting at age nine if they want to, and half of them do, right? So, What is it about this interaction between a young person and a supposed authority figure or intellectual figure at this formative moment in their life that that all of a sudden a word out of this professor's mouth is going to irreparably damage this young person? Like, I just don't, I, I have to say, like, I just don't quite understand it. Well, I'm just going to float a tiny theory here, Steve, and you can you can immediately stamp it down if it makes no sense. But couldn't it be that one is the cause of the other? Couldn't it be, be that because we're constantly inundated with all this pornographic sewage via the Internet and social media that we've created this 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 kind of bubble of, of wholesomeness and this almost like fear? It's, it's, it's sort of an obsession almost mm. with pedophilia or something. It's almost the idea that like college students are innocent children, little little innocent lambs skipping through a field and God forbid that they be endangered in any way, that they're not sexual subjects or actors in and of themselves and that maybe that is some sort of counter reaction to our Right. In some ways, maybe it's like a rejection of the hypersexualization of, of culture at large, right? Like that this, this, that there might be a power and a feeling of claiming one's ability to not be sexualized at all in any circumstance that's not completely under the, the, students control. Which is one of the points Kipnis makes as well when she says, well, so much for Freud's, you know, entire construction of the sexuality Mm -hmm. of childhood, right? That's like out the window now because we're now conceiving of them as these pure beings. Mm. Okay. Well, we need to throw this one out to the uh, listeners. Uh, uh, The essay is by Laura Kipnis. It's called Sexual Paranoia Strikes Academe. It raises a lot of interesting issues that we can't possibly puzzle out uh, in their entirety here. So we're very interested to hear what you have to say. Uh, what's your reaction to the essay, to the current reality? Come to facebook.com slash culturefest. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our other sponsor, Julia Turner. What do we have? All right. The Slate Culture Gabfest is sponsored this week by PBS, presenting Wolf Hall on Sunday, April 5th at 10, 9 central on Masterpiece. Wolf Hall is, of course, based on the best-selling and awesome book by Hilary Mantel. Have you guys read that? I feel like I endorsed it at one point or another. Nope, my life partner is way into it, and he's reading Bring Out the Bodies right now, but I've not read the other Did you read one. it, Steve? It's on the bedside table. I'm going to get to it really soon, but I'm psyched. Just a really gripping, awesome portrait of power and um, human foibles and political intrigue in the Tudor court, revolving primarily around Thomas Cromwell, the enigmatic and brilliant power broker serving Henry VIII. It's just a fascinating book, and it's going to be great, I'm sure, on screen. The production stars Mark Rylance as Thomas Cromwell, Damien Lewis of Homeland fame as Henry VIII, and Claire Foy as Anne Boleyn. So again, it's Wolf Hall airing on Masterpiece on PBS Sunday, April 5th at 10, 9 central. All right. Well, moving on. Jacob Rubin's first novel, The Poser, is out this month from Viking Press. Rubin will be doing a series for Browbeat, the uh, arts blog of Slate.com, of course, on the art of celebrity send-up. He joins us now to talk about impressions. Jacob, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, It's great to have you. Let's, before we dig in, why don't we listen to what is your favorite impression? Uh, Why don't we cue that up and then we'll discuss. Good evening. Happy holidays to y'all. Once again, it's that festive season. Tonight, our Jewish friends observe the fifth night of Hanukkah, the celebration of a military victory won centuries ago in a part of the world where today, 400,000 brave Americans await my order to annihilate Iraq. None of us want war in that whole area out over there. 
But as Commander-in-Chief, I am ever cognizant of my authority to launch a full-scale orgy of death there on the desert sand. <laughs> Probably won't, but then again, I might. All right, well, that, of course, or maybe not, of course, that's Dana Carvey in, uh, doing an impression of the first president, George Bush. Uh, Jacob, I'm very curious to know, why is this your favorite impression? Well, um, in identifying it as my favorite, I'm sure I'm outing myself as a child of the 90s, but um, I think what stands out about it uh, for me is that George H.W. Bush, at least on the screen test level, was such a forgettable and uninteresting president and such an unlikely source of both sort of pathos and vitality, uh, which I think Carvey somehow mined uh, in him. You know, um, there's some great impressions of Ronald Reagan, some great impressions of Bill Clinton, but to me, there's such larger-than-life figures that almost demand or invite mimicry, where it's very counterintuitive that you could create such a vital presence from George H.W. I mean, it was sort of tragic in a way, right? Here was a guy who had fought heroically in World War II. He had been the head of the CIA. He'd had a, a, an incredible career in public service, certainly relative to either Clinton or Reagan, and yet he was uh, doomed by this preppy label. And so he felt obliged to enact the part to a degree of a tough guy. And Carvey really caught that contradiction in his personality. Absolutely. Yeah. Carvey in a great clip sort of identifies, uh, he gives the formula, as it were, for imitating H.W. And he says it's mixing Mr. Rogers with John Wayne, uh, which I think <laughs> captures what you're describing, Steve, that sort of um, the uh, the preppy wasp curbing the um, libidinous warmonger, I think is how I put it in the piece. So I think um, <laughs> he, um, you also feel him so often in those debates, realizing he's just so frustrated and flustered by Clinton. Um, and it just seems his fate to be bookended by these great charismatic presences. And um, he, he's like someone who knows he's losing a popularity contest. And the more he fights against it, the more he's destined to lose it. So there's there's something very likable about that, even as he becomes more unlikable. I, and correct me if I'm wrong, but what's great about the impression and what's great about many great impressions is that it's not it's not rich little territory. It's not a technically perfect piece of mimicry. It's It's a kind of portraiture that cuts to the essence of who the person is. Absolutely. Yeah. I think I'm, uh, my favorite impressions are, are really interpretive um, and not sort of uncannily exact, as you're saying. And they show a real, they give a real take on, on who the person is and they're expressionistic. Um, and I think Carvey is a master at that. You see it in his Arnold Schwarzenegger too, which then uh, Conan O'Brien exaggerated even more like, I like to think of it as if you took almost the derivative of the curve of Dana Carvey's impression, you would have Conan O'Brien's impression. It's incredibly abstract, but also very satisfying to watch. All right, welcome. We're back. All right. Once again, I am Hans. Yeah, I am Franz, and we are here to pop. You are. Let me tell you something. Many of you are wondering where have we been. Yeah, that's right. We spent most of the summer in movie theaters intensely screening the year's most important cultural event, Terminator 2. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Welcome, Arnold. Welcome. No one I'm finally strong as ever. Now, you look okay, except for your upper lip doesn't look too good. My head is all swollen. But I have to warn you, because of the swollen knees, you may have trouble understanding some of what I say. <laughs> Even simple words like Ramos 
might come out sounding more like Okay, Arnold, uh, those aren't even words. You're not even words. All right. I, I think I like um, the levels of being inarticulate and emotive that both Conan and Carvey reach with Schwarzenegger, where he's um, intent on saying something but can't ever wrap his mouth around what exactly he wants to say. <laughs> Conan just seems very liberated whenever he does it. So how did you get interested in impressions in the first place? I mean, so your novel, which is just out, in it the main character is an incredibly talented impressionist. So you've spent a ton of time thinking about what makes impressions good and what draws people to doing them, which is part of why you're doing this series for us on Slate. But I'm curious how you got interested in them in the first place and and why you think they're so fascinating for us. Yeah, I, I, it's one of those things where, in a weird way, I think if I could exhaust my fascination with them through analysis, I may not have had to have sunk more time than I care to admit into, into writing this book about it. But I've just always been struck by them and found them really entertaining. And there are certain clips that I can just sort of watch over and over again. And, and it's such a deep and very like visceral pleasure to see someone duplicated that way to see like the essence of a person transferred from face to face I, I sometimes think that one bit as I've been working on this blog I've been watching uh, I've been going to the University of YouTube and uh, <laughs> watching these clips a, a frequent setup is to have the impressionist dress like the imitated subject and I often found that that somehow mitigates the effect and that it's better actually for me when they don't look alike that sort of points up the uncanny skill of the of the mimic that they can be this person. Like I like um, seeing Will Ferrell do George W. Bush in part because there's such disparate physical presences, but then somehow he seems to become him. You know, like Will Ferrell's this lumbering, tall sort of man child, and and he brings that out of Bush, but Bush is sort of more of a square just physically. Uh, so it's interesting to see that transfer take place. We are almost out of time, so I will instead ask each candidate to sum up in a single word the best argument for his candidacy. Governor Bush? Strategery. <laughs> Something that you say in the piece that fascinated me is that satire cannot really coexist with a great impression and that there has to be some sympathy for the, for the character of the person being impersonated. Can you talk about that? Yeah, um, and that's something actually I think uh, I'm hoping to write a little bit more about in an in a upcoming post for the, for the blog, but impressions sort of ride this weird axis of ridicule and homage, and it's sometimes hard to tell which it's doing, or sometimes it seems to be doing both simultaneously. Um, but yeah, I think that for for an impression to really succeed, there has to be some sort of, it has to work from the inside out, and there has to be some element of empathy there. And I use in the piece um, uh, Will Ferrell's W impression as an example of where he sort of makes him an innocent and an ingenue before sort of any, he seems to have, have no like sexual awareness or life. He's just sort of having fun posing as the leader of the free world. So I, I don't think it really succeeds as satire. He did that whole stage show, um, and I think it just ends up making him sort of lovable, even though the things he's saying are, are terrible and totally ignorant and dangerous. Those in the media criticized it as a theatrical and expensive stunt. And we, we tried to explain how I had to fly in a jet because the, the carrier was too far away for a helicopter to fly. And somebody pointed out that the carrier was only 30 miles off the coast of San Diego. We said, oh, that's much closer than we thought. So, yeah, I, I do think they, they sort of take the sting out of any satire. And I think even bad ones sort of inure us to the person's presence and in that way underscore their authority uh, 
even if it's inadvertent. So we sort of get used to seeing this person. And um, so I think in that way, too, they don't really effectively undermine them. I don't know if I agree with that. I mean, I do think that that you make a really persuasive case that empathy is key to making one good. But I also feel like you can experience an impression of a, a public figure that does recast them for you a bit in a way that can function as criticism. And I'm thinking here of um, Fred Armisen's impression of Obama. And I had sort of never noticed Obama's impatient looks, you know, but that was really the hallmark of that Armisen impression of Obama was that everything he said, he would start with like, look, you know, and, and the sense that Obama somehow had a slight sense of frustration and felt like he understood how to see the world and every, but, but that the rest of the world did not at all understand how to see things and that he had to preface every idea or communication with the benighted and dumb American public with this this plea to please just regard the world in a way that made any sense at all was both, it was like a little needly and, and also maybe, I mean, as I'm spitting it out, maybe you're right, maybe there is a fundamental empathy in that emphasis on the look. But it didn't make me like Obama more. It made me feel a little bit like he was a frustrated snob which is something that I suppose Obama's critics had been saying for a long time, but that I didn't quite uh, like emotionally grok deeply uh, until I started watching that impression a lot. So it's not like they, I mean, the empathy animates them, but I'm not sure that it necessarily leaves the viewer more empathic all the time. Yeah, I think that's true. I think um, they have to start with empathy and, and I would imagine for the performer. I still think in the case of Fred Armisen's I think we're still it's still sort of more screen time for Obama as a figure on the television. So in that way, it sort of extends his brand or something. But I, de- I definitely hear what you're saying. and I don't know that it's as simple as um, the more empathetic, the better. I think I think a great example of one that's sort of hard to tell is um, Eddie Murphy's impression of his father, um, who's a drunk, and he closes both of his stand-up specials with it, and it's this weird either like active Oedipal transcendence or blockade that's going on there. It's unclear, but he's like his father. And it's this spacious bit where there are sort of punchlines that you feel he has to hit, but he's sort of just inhabiting his father's personality totally. Black men like to claim the house when they're drunk. Men, period, I think, man, like to just claim their house. They want you to know if you're drunk and if they're drunk and you're in their house, that is their house. My father stand up in the middle of the cookout and say, it's my house. No, it is, and if you don't like it, you get the fuck out. I don't give a fuck. I don't give a fuck. I pay the motherfucking bills in this motherfucker. And hey, kiss my ass if you don't like it. Dissolving into him entirely, but then also mocking him. At this, so it's really hard to know what's going on there, but it's fascinating to watch. Why don't you listen? Oh, Eddie, get that motherfucking dog away from my plate. I'm gonna shoot this dog. I'm gonna shoot the mother. Shut up. I'm gonna shoot it. Stop crying. Stop crying, Eddie, because you can get the fuck out. You can get the fuck. I know you're seven. I know you're seven. But you'll be a seven-year-old walking the dog, no house motherfucker. Yeah, you know, Jacob, that's making me think of our earlier segment today, which was about Eloise, the new documentary about the making of the, the book, and uh, and that Kay Thompson, the author of the book, began as a character, that, that Eloise began as like a character that she would slip into. She would hang out with her friends and talk like this bratty little six-year-old girl, 
and it almost reminds me of like the, the Gilda Radner character that she used to do, the little girl that jumped up and down on the bed, right? She kind of went into some id-like, childlike place and inhabited the character, and that's what the books grew out of. Yeah, absolutely. I think, and I think you feel that in some impressions, you feel the the performer being led by some weird force, and um, that they can sort of ad lib infinitely in their exa- voice. Exactly, they've sort of entered this consciousness that is inexhaustible, um, and but very specific at the same time. Yeah, I do feel like mm-hmm. I, I watched a bunch of impressions in preparation for this segment, and thinking about some of my favorite ones, it is the marriage of of being uncannily like something and then using that likeness to do something else that becomes surprising and fascinating. I found myself most delighted, I think, by watching Dan Aykroyd's Julia Child. He's only really interested in the way she talks, and she had a very particular way of talking. You know, He's not interested in her cultural role or changing place of food in American society or really anything about the fact that she just had this bizarre way of talking, and there's a great bit where he imitates her describing how you should save the giblets and the livers. Today we're going to make a holiday feast, or les fêtes d'oliday, and we're going to start with half-bone chicken, or poulard, demi de saucine. Now you need a fine, fat, roasting chicken like this one, and first remove the giblets, and you really should save the giblets, they make a fine stock for soup, or you can save the, the liver and fry it up with some onions for a little snack, or if you have a number of livers, you can make a lovely liver pate, or uh, perhaps a delicious liverwurst which you can spread on a cracker, a Ritz cracker, a saltine. But I guess then what he's creating there, out of noodling the voice, is is this woman who's fixated on what you should do with chicken innards, which is just a kind of cosmically amusing character. And the other impression that it reminds me of that I love is um, Bill Hader, who I think is one of the best impressionists mm-hmm. of our of the current comedy crop. Yeah. You seem really happy. Of course I'm happy, Seth. It's almost summertime. <laughs> Pretty soon I'll be back in Louisiana drinking sweet tea on the porch with my high school buddy, Alligator Joe. Now, why do you call him Alligator Joe? Because he's an alligator, oh, Seth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so James... His James Carville is this insane, cockamamie, like, southern, gothic, evil mastermind, like, frenetic, manic figure. And it's sort of like he found he found a way to create a whole new character out of out of the ticks and mannerisms of Carville. Yeah, I think a lot of it, Dana mentioned the id, I think a lot of it is landing on this sort of surface detail where something's peeking out that when sort of pulled or plumbed leads to this like reservoir of affect that's sort of not totally tapped or has been partially tapped so it is transformative, but also you feel like something that's in Julia Child is coming out, even if it's not fully expressed in her. And I feel like that's what's sort of drawn out. That explosion of it is sort of tapped into when you see like Bill Hader doing Carvel or like Conan doing Schwarzenegger or something. You know where else I really see mm. that? And I, I kind of want to start just throwing names of you know famous impressions at you and hearing what you have to say about them. But Phil Hartman's Clinton had, oh. I think, he sort oh of arrived God. at that ocean of id. And I always remember and often badly try to imitate an SNL sketch where Hartman as Clinton goes into a McDonald's. Do you oh. remember this one? A campaign stop at a McDonald's? I mean, it's, and he's taking it's, everyone's it's French eternal. fries. Oh, it's one of the... I just the rem- warlords. Yeah. That's... I, I think Phil Hartman had the best Clinton. And I think it it's sort of neglected often... Because Daryl Hammonds is is spot on, and Kevin Spacey, I think, seems to really get the sleaziness of Clinton. 
But I think what, what sets Phil Hartman's apart is the intelligence. Like, I, th- I think so mm-hmm. many Clintons emphasize his lasciviousness, the sort of sliminess. But Hartman, you get a sense of what a smart guy this guy is, but he doesn't always choose to be smart. And I think you see that in the McDonald's clip. Oh hey. hey, how you doing? Nice to meet you. How are you? Oh, that's an adorable baby. What's your name, sweetheart? Her name is Shakira. Shakira. That means African princess, doesn't it? Oh, why, yes! <laughs> well, she certainly is beautiful enough to be a princess. So, are you going to finish these fries? Well, you see his ability to connect with people, right? Exactly. And that, that campaign, that glad-handing ability, and also his appetitiveness and his greed and grabbing everyone's French fries. It's just kind of all there. Absolutely. Yeah, he, to me, captures that quality Clinton has where you see him and, you, and you're like, this guy's operating on about... 55 different levels mm-hmm. right now in planes. Yeah. And Hartman captures that, which is so hard to do. He doesn't flatten him. Um, and you're absolutely right. You see him connecting to people. You see his encyclopedic knowledge of the issues. But then ultimately, he's most interested in sort of stealing a McNugget when he can. <laughs> we voted for you, sir. Well, thank you, Les. So you own your own hardware store, huh? Yes, sir. Since 1972. Well, good for you. You know, we want to create a network of community development banks to lend money to small businesses like yourself. I see your boy doesn't like pickles. (laughs) Nah, he hates them. You mind? (laughs) Thanks a lot. One thing that you talk about in the novel, Jake, the, the, the character who's this very talented impressionist has this idea of the thread, that if you can find anybody's thread... Then, then you have it. You've unlocked them, and usually it's very apparent to him. And occasionally, it takes him a little while to puzzle it through. And 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 those situations fascinate and bedevil him. But um, but the thing I'm interested in is the thread is a, is a useful metaphor for this in part because it's unclear what it is and whether it's usually a particular physical observation or it comes from something more inner and emotional or what like what kinds of threads are there. Yeah, well, it's, it, so in the novel, the metaphor of the thread is um, he, he compares people's presentations of self to like a costume they wear, and there's like a seam, a loose seam or a thread, so there's sort of a, a wrinkle in the fabric that he can then pull and unravel it. I guess I think of the thread as something perhaps a little more like metaphysical or essentializing that gets beyond just the actual ticks of a person, and I think it's interesting to sort of, sort of collect the different impressions that great impressionists do and see what the unifying characteristic of those are. So the Spacey Carson, I think, shares a lot in common with the um, Spacey's Clinton um, and even Spacey's Nicholson. Like they all, there's a sleaziness in all of them, whereas Carvey's, there's almost this innocence. Ostensibly, if, if an android or something were watching them, they may not be able to tell how different they are uh, in terms of the affect or the emotive force that each projects. And I do think it's it's almost ineffable. It's hard to say why one seems innocent and one seems sleazy or one seems nervous and one seems relaxed. Because I think Carson is, is such a goldmine for um, Impressionists, probably be for the same reasons that he was such an iconic entertainer, as he seems to inhabit all of these different qualities in the same gestures. You know, he's nervous, he's twitchy, he's relaxed. He's very paradoxical, and he's all these things at the same time. All right. Well, I think we probably have to wrap up. Before we go, we have to ask you, Jacob, do you, do you yourself do any impressions? I, I, I'm blushing in the booth here. I do. I, I do some. I do um, 
probably the one I feel most confident in, though it's it's pretty abstract, is an imitation of former uh, or basketball icon Bill Walton, um, who is, <laughs> I don't know how well known he is. Only Steve will have a response to that. <laughs> I'm laughing already. <laughs> so he, and I have to credit my friend Alex Taylor, he and I sort of informally workshopped this for months and just our daily lives. So I don't know how much time we have for setup. This is going to require a little setup. Bill Walton is this um, one of the greatest college basketball players of all time, and then a little bit of a flop as an NBA player just because he had these terrible injuries in his to his in his feet. Um, but he then became this sort of psychedelic commentator because he was a big fan of the Grateful Dead. He's like this overgrown hippie, seven feet tall, and in the '90s he used to uh, do a lot of games, Utah Jazz games, and they had this center named Greg Ostertag who was a really unskilled also seven foot white guy and Walton used to just ride him all the time um, more like a coach than a, than a commentator so and he would often sort of um, call upon his vast experience as a deadhead as a, as a disciplined basketball player to ridicule Ostertag so that's that's the setup <laughs> for this <laughs> oh my god I'm so primed <laughs> So he would say things to Ostertag like, I've seen Haley's Comet four times. I've seen the moon divide like a fetus. I've seen a whale explode. Now I see a seven-foot white man, albeit one with leaden ankles, toad-like hands, and middling agility, but a seven-foot white man nonetheless, miss an uncontested layup. <laughs> Guess I've seen it all. Oh my God, Lauren Michaels, sign him up. A little obscure, a little obscure, but we can go niche. We can go niche. We might have to copy and paste that over to hang up and listen. Oh God, forgive me. Oh, you're forgiven. All right, well, Jacob, thanks so much for coming on. Really psyched to read the novel. Uh, uh, Jacob Rubin's first novel is The Poser. It's out out this month from Viking Press. He'll be doing a weekly series for the Browbeat blog on Slate about celebrity mimicry. Jacob, thanks so much for coming on the show. It was really a delight. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana. What do you got? All right. Well, just like last week, I have to start off my endorsement with a correction from last week's endorsement. That's particularly shaming because I began last week's endorsement by correcting and then saying, and now I'll say an endorsement that has all correct facts in it. But it didn't. (laughs) As a journalist, I am ashamed. Um, But it was a small fact. So last week I endorsed the uh, the film Wrecking Crew about uh, studio musicians in L.A., which I still endorse. It's a great movie. And I mistakenly said that this Wrecking Crew, this this informal group of great crack musicians um, who played in L.A. studios, had played on Sgt. Pepper's. And that is not true. In fact, it comes up in the movie that the, the, the album they played on that came out right around the same time was Pet Sounds, the Beach Boys, great masterpiece, Pet Sounds. And George Martin, the Beatles producer, when he heard Pet Sounds, said, I want those musicians. I want to sound like that. But in fact, he did not hire the Wrecking Crew. He just sort of tried to emulate their sound. So I stand corrected. The Wrecking Crew does not play on Sgt. Pepper's. They play on Pet Sounds. 
Um, but as for this week's endorsement, I'm now actually looking at the web page on it, so I cannot say anything wrong about it. <laughs> it's something that came to me during our, our Eloise segment, again, because, as you said, Julia, that movie about Hillary Knight just left so many interesting characters and, and stories unexplored. And one of them is Kay Thompson, the author of Eloise, who was more known as a, as a Broadway and movie actress and is probably known to most American moviegoers as the fabulous fashion magazine editor she plays in Stanley Donen's great musical Funny Face, which stars Fred Astaire and Audrey Hepburn. But the character that she was supposed to be channeling, although she's very Kay Thompson-y, she seems to be sort of channeling herself and Eloise and all of her fabulousness, but the character that she was actually supposed to be sort of parodying was Diana Vreeland, the legendary editor of Vogue. And so I've now gotten to my endorsement for this week, which is the documentary about Diana Vreeland called The Eye Has to Travel. Did you ever see this, Julia? I never did. It's so you. You would actually love it. I mean, it's, it's all about you know, being a magazine editor and reimagining what a magazine can be. And Diana Vreeland is just such a huge personality. It's, there's a lot of talking head just talking to her about her life, which is incredibly storied and fascinating and all over the globe, and uh, and just how radically she changed fashion magazines and their ambitions and the things that they tried to do and that the ways that they, they looked. And, uh, and so it's full of great visuals and great interviews, and it's just really, really fun exploration of, of the character of Diana Vreeland. So The Eye Has to Travel, you can find it anywhere. It seems to be on Amazon, iTunes, Netflix, all over the place. Um, I noticed, Dana, you don't ask if I've seen this documentary. <laughs> because I know that you live it every day, Steve. <laughs> In your butterfly kimono. <laughs> all his all his walls are lacquered blood red. <laughs> oh my God. All right. Julia, what do you got? I have two endorsements today, Steve. The first is a word that was recently maligned in the New York Times, and it came up in our segment on Eloise, and I'd like to defend it. Uh, one of the copy chiefs at the Times wrote a piece about time style and sort of lazy journalismese language. It's a delightful column that I would commend our listeners to read and talks about, uh, you know, bracing for a fight and uh, uh, waging battle and all the kind of pat journalistic phrases that easily creep their way into dumb articles and should not. So it's very good in almost all of its advice, except he also exhorts his readers to avoid uh, insufficiently bloody and violent use of the word mayhem. He objects to the use of the word mayhem to mean just like wild, wild chaos and merriment. He thinks it should mean like bloody devastation and rubble everywhere. And I think we talked about Eloise as a mayhem reeking youngster. And I, I think it would be very sad to divorce a character like Eloise from the word mayhem. I think mayhem is just a great word for non-bloody, non-gory madness. So I would commend you to read uh, the very sprightly and mostly totally sound excoriation of journalism ease, but stipulate that we should leave mayhem out of it. So that's endorsement one. Endorsement two, very briefly, I finally did go back and watch Working Girl. We talked about this movie when some of us were cavelling about the performance of Melanie Griffith's daughter, Dakota Johnson, in Fifty Shades of Grey. And um, so I went back and, and made my husband watch Working Girl a couple weekends ago. And it remains a really fun movie. And Melanie Griffith is as fun and sprightly a comedic actress as I had remembered. The movie ages pretty well. One of the best things about it is uh, the kind of not-pat relationship between Melanie Griffith and her Staten Island uh, boyfriend, played by a very young Alec Baldwin, who um, she eventually uh, sets her sights on a starrier Manhattanite boyfriend in the form of Harrison Ford. But the, the kind of class contours of her evolution from Staten Island working girl to 
um, yuppie aspirant are interesting and more subtly drawn than you might expect if you just remember her like taking off her sneakers after she gets off the Staten Island ferry. Um, the Sigourney Weaver role does not age as well. She is just a pure like bitch parrot mm. and shrew, and it's there's not a lot of sympathy or empathy uh, or subtlety in in that portrayal. Um, but it's still a movie that's well worth watching, and uh, I, I would recommend it as well. I love the final song in that movie, the Carly Simon, as the camera pulls out from the high well, rise. I would also point out it is not the final song. It is the only song in that movie. Like, the scoring of that movie is actually extraordinary. It's just that song. I mean, I may be wrong because I don't have a great ear for this. But, but versions of that musical theme seem to... Have basically be the only musical experience. So it opens with the song. It closes with the song. <laughs> no wonder I remember the song. But then also like all of the little musical bridges or sometimes there's like a little orchestral version of the song. Sometimes there's just like a, f- a few fleeting notes of the melodic arc of the song. But like that song is deeply stamped on that movie. <laughs> Maybe there was a music rights problem like all we got's the Carly Simon guys. <laughs> <laughs> it really works. That song is 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 so deeply aligned with the movie. I had that memory too and and look watching it again, um, I was impressed by its omnipresence within the film and how non-irritated I was despite that omnipresence. Anyway, it's a great movie. Go watch it uh, and be, please use the word mayhem uh, until mayhem ensues. Okay, so a couple of quick things. First is that um, I've recently endorsed uh, the Orwell uh, two-volume two collection of nonfiction essays by, by Orwell and uh, and uh, Eric Newby's uh, Short Walk in the Hindu Kush. I've now read both of them, and I want to say that they are as good as I said they were when I endorsed them, uh, having read only part of them. They're both amazing. And I want to say quickly about the Orwell that Inside the Whale, the essay about Henry Miller, is probably the best piece of literary criticism I've ever read. I mean, I, I to me, it is an absolute model of what literary criticism can be when it engages the personality and sensibility and biography of the writer in a decorous way that doesn't overwhelm the piece, a work of literature to which it shows uh, emergent literature, something that whose reputation is not settled. It shows an enormous sensitivity, uh, uh, a capaciousness of learning, and political and social context that brings all of those things together in total harmony. It really is. I just inside. I'd never read Inside the Whale. It's one of the best things Orwell ever wrote, and it is absolutely the the to my mind the exemplary piece of of literary and social criticism. Um, and the newbie book is just a candy from beginning to end. It's probably one of the best travel books ever written in English. I highly recommend it. It's just amazing from beginning to end. But that's not really my endorsement. My endorsement this week is uh, a guy named. Uh, Michael Brown died last week at the age of 65. He is known pretty much for one thing. When he was 16 years old, he wrote the song Walk Away, Renee, uh, and his band, The Left Bank, recorded it, and it became kind of the first, quote-unquote, like Baroque pop song or Baroque rock song, and it's inspired... Uh, and they were kind of a one-hit wonder. They had one other kind of semi-interesting song. Uh, but anyway, the story of how he wrote it came out, or it's come out, I'm sure, before, but it was repeated... Uh, uh, on the occasion of his passing away, which was that he was desperately in love with the girlfriend of the bassist of the band, and um, he played clavinet and harpsichord, so he was never going to win her over. Um, and uh, But the only thing he could do was write this song kind of in her honor. So as my endorsement, uh, I want to endorse a blog post by the music critic Bill Wyman, 
who's um, not also the bassist for the Rolling Stones, who does occasionally write for Slate, a great music critic. Um, and it says, liner no- and the blog post is called Liner Notes to Albums That Should Exist But Don't, first in a series. And it basically is a playlist of all the people who've covered Walk Away Renee because it's an incredible template for other artists to bring their own you know, a voice and sensibility to. Uh, and it's a fantastic blog post and it just honors what's so provocative and weird and kind of narcissistic and self-pitying in a great way about that song. And um, it led me to the to a Billy Bragg cover of the song, which is not really a cover of the song. What it really is, is Billy Bragg, I know this is just going to go on interminably, but um, but it's pretty good. It gets pretty good. The, um, Billy Bragg was about to record his own masterpiece, a song called Greetings to the New Brunette with Johnny Marr, the guitarist of the Smiths, playing the guitar part on it. It's one of the reasons why it's a great song. And Marr, while they were warming up, uh, just started playing Walk Away Renee on his acoustic guitar, and Billy Bragg signaled to the recording engineer to record it. And it's amazing because Marr is just, he's just such a great, great, great rock and roll guitarist. You know, it's just the perfect combination of kind of self-taught expressiveness and technical competence. And he just plays this beautiful, haunting, simple um, rendition of Walk Away, of the chords and the melody of Walk Away Renee on an acoustic guitar, to which later Billy Bragg appended this kind of bizarre spoken word monologue um and it's kind of a it's just a great homage to that song and then the my other favorite version of it is ricky lee jones recorded a version of it i think produced by daniel lenoir and it's a little baroque and excessive which is perfect for the song she was in i think a year or so ago she was out touring and she was at a piano alone singing and the audience called out the song and said they wanted her to play it and she has to kind of relearn it and remind herself how to play it as she goes and she herself is such the soul of fragility and uh, vulnerability and she can't quite remember it and has to stop and start and then she finds her voice and she remembers it and she fucking nails it and and at and at every second of the singing of it of the performing of it you think she's going to crumple like a fucking souffle um and and it just produces this incredible moment of live performance anyway so my endorsement is the song Walk Away Renee, the wonderful blog post that gets into, by Bill Wyman, that gets into what the essence of that song is and how various people have covered it. And then we'll link to this kind of sui generis little cover version by Ricky Lee Jones. There we go, Don. Hooray. That is a good Uh, song. Yeah. Uh, All right, Dana, thank you. Thanks, Steve. Julia, thanks a lot. Thank you. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Joel Meyer. Our intern is Lindsay Albrecht. The managing producer of Slate Podcast is also Joel Meyer. And the executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. Our Twitter feed is Slate Cult Fest. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. She said it was just a figment of speech. And I said, you mean figure? And she said, no, figment. Because she could never imagine it happening. But it did. When we first met, I played the shy boy. And when she spoke to me for the first time... 
Hi, this is Mike Pesca, host of the Just a Daily News Show from Slate. Now, we are a news show. We talk about elections. We talk about the war, all sorts of things. But you know what? Sometimes we talk mustard. I met a mustard sommelier. Yeah, mustard sommelier. And we found out in the course of the interview, there aren't that many synonyms for the word mustard. 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 For mustard. Mustard. It's mustard. 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 The mustard. 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 That's good mustard. Listen to the whole show at slate.com slash the gist. It's not just mustard, but sometimes it's a lot of mustard.